Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Smart People Podcast Mastermind is now live, where you can ask your questions to the experts via live webinars. Additionally, you get never-before-heard audio content in a private community made up of like-minded learners just like yourself that are striving for more. Head on over to mastermind.smartpeoplepodcast.com for more details. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's have a good time today, guys. Today we're going to be talking about, you know, that, that thing that at some point in our lives we all have to do, either for a profession or to get what we want, or it's just inherent in our lives, and that's sales. But of course, we're taking a little different approach. So today we're interviewing Tim Sanders, and Tim is the author of the recent book, Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenge. Now, Tim is the man. Check this out. He's the former Yahoo Chief Solutions Officer. But check out where Tim has worked and what he's done. He was on the ground floor of the quality movement, the launch of the mobile phone industry, and probably most notably, the birth of the World Wide Web. So he was an early stage member of Mark Cuban and Todd Wagner's Broadcast.com, which had the largest opening day IPO in history. And then when they got acquired by Yahoo, he worked with Seth Godin a little bit. And then by 2001, he rose to the position of chief solutions officer and then became the company's 
leadership coach. So he really just has this love for and understanding of building teams and how to build teams that work together to sell their product or to create solutions. And that's kind of what we discuss in this episode. How do you create a structured, scalable, repeatable process that can break through sales deadlocks? But it's really interesting. We hear some stories from Tim about companies he's worked for, things he's learned, again, what it's like to work for Mark Cuban, uh, his interaction with Seth Godin, and even how he was the extemporaneous speaker champion at one point. Interesting conversation. So going to talk to Tim here in a second. I did want to say, as many of you know, on March 24th, we held our first live webinar. And thank you so much for those that joined. It ended up being even more than I expected with people really asking questions. And Dave Burse, our host, was welcoming those, taking breaks. And then we did a Q&A at the end, which really, where else can you ask the experts your own questions? I mean, I mean, literally, what's your agenda? Let's ask it. Well, you can do it at the Smart People Podcast Mastermind, which is now live. Mastermind.smartpeoplepodcast.com. And for those that couldn't make it, don't worry. We know you have a good excuse, but we are offering a replay. We didn't plan on it initially, but it's such great content. Really, guys, we want to share it with you. So all you have to do is go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash bursts. B-I-R-S-S, and that link will allow you to get the replay. Again, that's smartpeoplepodcast.com slash bursts. We have the next webinar coming up very soon. As a matter of fact, mark your calendars. It will be April 19th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That's right. The next Mastermind webinar is April 19th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. More details for that will come, but it will be private and it will be only for Mastermind members. So again, if you want to sign up, mastermind.smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, let's talk to Tim Sanders as we discuss deal storming, sales, and collaboration. Enjoy. All right, Tim. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I know, as we just discussed, you're in Vegas, so it's pretty early. So I hope you've got your caffeine ready. I do. I'm good to go, and it's good to be with you. <laughs> well, first, uh, you know, sometimes I get some flack from listeners who say, hey, you spend a lot of time talking about guests' bios and their backgrounds, but it's because that's what I find really interesting, especially when I have people such as yourself on that I can learn from. So the first thing I want to start, though, is I read somewhere in your background that you were the national, you were a national champion in extemporaneous speaking. Is that for real? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and the funny story is yeah, I, I, I won that championship freshman year of college and I was going to a community college at the time, Odessa Community College in Odessa, Texas. And it was a shocker, you know, for all of us. Um, we qualified for what they called the four-year national invitation tournament, which is reserved for you know universities, et cetera. Um, and and that had been done before by a CC, but uh, it was a real surprise. I went there and I just had a really good tournament. And uh, when they announced the the final round, I was just absolutely floored. And um, I announced my retirement from the extemporaneous <laughs> speaking category um, immediately after receiving that award and then spent the next three years of my collegiate career um, focusing on debate. First, we have to learn what 
is like what do they ask you in that tournament is it is it essentially we're going to ask you a question and you just talk you don't know the questions in advance so 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 that's a, there's kind of a category so one category in speech and debate is called impromptu and it works sort of like that they ask you a general question you have a couple of minutes and you you do your thing extemporaneous speaking is a little more structured so um, you're usually asked a question about a current event, usually around what should America do about blank. It's very mm. common. Um, and when you go to these extempt tournaments, you carry these, this is back in the 80s, you carry these catalog cases. And all they have are news articles and briefs on what's going on in the world. So you draw a topic. So you could draw any one of 50 to 100 topics. You draw a topic on a piece of paper, and you're given 30 minutes to structure a seven-minute speech. And so that's how that competition works. And wow. then you, 30 minutes later, give your speech. So what's the key there? How, what can we take away for those of us that, although we might not be uh, doing it on an official basis or you know, as a, as a uh, competitor— how do you do that? What's the key? Well, chance favors the prepared mind, mm -hmm. right? Louis Pasteur, and it's very true in extemporaneous speaking. So if you're a voracious reader of current events and policy, which I was at the time, if you are organized in how you bring your research to tournaments so you can put your fingers on it really quickly, and if you have an inventory of bits, that's a comedic term, but bits, mm -hmm. um, bits could be anything from... Um, simple analogies that illustrate a complex concept, maybe jokes, uh, not necessarily uh, offensive jokes, but self-effacing or common problem jokes around key categories at the time like oil embargo or foreign trade or you know, post-Vietnam, et cetera, then, then you've got it, right? So you've done your research, you can put your hands on it, and you've also got some candy, i.e. bits um, that you can dress to talk up with. You're good to go. The other secret to it, if you watch reality shows, is you've got to spend the first 10 minutes or so planning. You don't just start rehearsing. So you want to make sure that you plan, you outline, and then the last 20 minutes, you want to try to give that talk at least twice, like standing up in a mirror, standing up against the wall, give that talk. You spend the last five minutes centering yourself. I used to have a Walkman. Yeah, an old cassette Walkman. Wow. LeBron James top yeah. headphones on for the last five <laughs> minutes and just kind of get into your grits and you walk into the room and you execute. And by the way, that's exactly how you should think about today's entrepreneurship or selling, you know, when it comes to deal making. Same structure. I certainly relied on that in my new book. Really? Oh, absolutely. So and we're gonna get into the book again, it's deal storming, the secret weapon that can solve your toughest sales challenge. I, I I mean, I guess I would see just generally communicating with folks is a skill that can be used across many things. But the thing that might surprise me the most, I think, is sometimes we think of sales as, uh, you know, it's we know what we're going to talk about and it's scripted. So how does the extemporaneous part weigh in really in today's sales environment? Well, first of all, you have multiple decision makers now. Uh, when I started in sales selling radio ads, you had one to two, mom mm. and or pop, okay? Mm -hmm. Today, according to CEB, Corporate Executive Board, the average B2B sale involves almost six decision makers 
and an army of influencers that you'll never have a chance to meet. And the issue is these decision makers are doing their own research, okay? You know, I mentioned when I was doing Extemp in the 80s, you carried catalog cases. You don't have to do that anymore. You have Google. Mm. Now the customer is empowered to do a lot of their research, and CEB says that they don't even meet with the sales rep until they're like 70% through the buyer's journey. So the problem with the script is that, A, the script becomes obsolete as soon as you can write it because you're selling to multiple decision makers who all have their own agendas. And B, the script isn't presentable to all of the influencers because you can't track them all down and sell them. So you have to be very innovative in what you choose to present, who you choose to present to, and how you try to sell through a deal. So so when I started, a manager would tell me a couple of things. It's a numbers game, right? Fill the funnel, trust the system. They would also say, it's a jungle out there. So be very tenacious and very aggressive, right? Make the calls, close the deal, like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, always be closing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And in that world, there was an infinite number of leads, you would think. In other words, you had very few competitors. There was an unwashed world out there, and you could afford to survive on a 1% to a 10% close ratio. That world doesn't exist today. We all sell in the niches. And the reality is, if we don't capture the biggest opportunities in our market, we'll probably lose our market to a better competitor. Mm -hmm. So the whole concept of it's a numbers game is completely as outdated as uh, Baldwin's tie in, in Glengarry Glen Ross. Mm -hmm. And the second issue here is that you've got to be very good at figuring out who is going to sell for you. So in certain situations, you're going to have to go out and get a deal mentor and be really adaptive about how you do that. That deal mentor may have already sold this prospect. They may be inside the prospect and they're going to help you navigate your selling journey. Or they might just be one of your LinkedIn contacts who really understands this entry industry or this type of decision maker. And that's a really innovative way to think about it. The final thing I would say is that if you're trying to sell to decision makers who have to turn around and convince influencers you'll never meet, from disciplines that range from finance to procurement to operations to third-party consulting, you'd better be creative in the Ill way you illustrate your unique selling proposition. And quite frequently, it takes too long for whoever is creating the script to integrate the winning illustration into it. I was just at a sales conference the other day, and they had done research about how long it takes for a field-level innovation, how we present, how we sell, how we close, to actually make its way into a formal case study, which is part of the new script. Guess how long that takes on the average? Mm, I, I couldn't. I really couldn't tell you. 30 months. What? 30 months. Wait, wait. Okay, now I need some explanation. From To get from... What to what takes 30 months? So guy goes into the field. He's selling Regis right. uh, uh, leasing solutions. You know, Regis is the really expensive but really nice um, uh, office an entrepreneur can get in a Tony shopping center with a bunch of amenities. It's 5-6x its nearest competitor. Sure. Guy in Denver figures out as he's getting beat up all the time on price per square foot that he's selling the wrong thing. He's just trying to sell the demo and the tour, trying to sell references and testimonials, but what he really needs is something that the prospect can explain to his spouse or 
her business partner. And this is a real example. Mm -hmm. So finally, the rep comes up with an ultimate uh, illustration, which she creates a poster board for that shows a BMW X5 right next to an old, ugly Ford cargo van. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you priced both of them on delivery per square foot based on what they can carry, obviously the cargo van is three, four, five X a better deal. But if you want to drive luxury and if you want to be proud of what you drive and have the ultimate driving experience, you buy the BMW X5, okay? Mm -hmm. Guy in Denver named Mike Smith starts to use that. He 2Xs his closing ratio because he's giving a handout to them that they use when the prospect goes home and tries to explain this higher price point to someone mm -hmm. who's an influencer, okay? Mm -hmm. it, it, in Regis culture, it used to be um, something like that took a long time to snake its way all the way to script because you have to understand how corporations work. You have a field level victory. It kind of bubbles up to a sales manager who might talk about it at the next sales rally a year later. Then at that point, marketing might get involved and say, has this been used anywhere else? And then they eventually schedule it for creation of collateral. Now we're almost two years into the mix. Then the collateral gets delivered back to sales training, which goes over to sales leadership, which may tweak their script every two to three years. And bada bing, bada boom, you're at 30 months. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, at certain cultures like Prudential Retirement, which is the corporate division that does all the Fortune 500 record keeping, mm -hmm. you know, for benefits. They don't do it that way, okay? They have a sales leader innovation conference call every two weeks. And basically, they check in on any breakthroughs in the field that are really changing the game. And then when they find a breakthrough that works, they do a two-week sprint to try it again several times to test its scalability, and then they'll do another two-week sprint to get that sucker all the way into market where the next set of reps are using that immediately. And that hyper-acceleration of sales innovation, that just rhymed, by the way, mm. is the only way to keep up with the buyers because the buyer's tolerance for how we sell them is rising dramatically. Yeah. So whatever you said in the script last year is not going to work next year because they're one step ahead of you and they're getting more and more diversified and sophisticated. In what ways do they get, I mean, not do they get diversified and sophisticated, but is it that they don't want to hear the same message or, you know, how do you move with them? Well, first of all, all your competition's copying your messaging, okay? Uh, we live in a crowd-based, crowd-fired world, okay? So when you think of when I started out, it would take a lot of capital, probably three or four million to create a competitive radio station in my market. Think about that. Very limited competitors. When I'm walking the streets, there's one other radio station in town, and there is no way for them to know what I'm actually pitching unless I left something behind. But today, you have got all these cloud-based competitors who can open up shop for pennies on the dollar. They're scraping the web. Most of your presentations are out there on SlideShare. And if they see something they like, they begin to use it right away. So differentiation is really difficult in the market that we're in right now. So the script is easily copied. But the second issue is, when you've got multiple buyers on a decision maker for whatever reason, maybe there's, there's, they're a public company under governance rules. So they've got to make sure it's all been buttoned up by ops and finance and procurement. And sometimes, quite frankly, um, they're trying to reduce the cost of ownership. So they're creating buying storm teams across major disciplines and departments so they can notice things they used to miss. All right. And in that situation, you're going to have to customize because 
as, as one of my folks from Oracle told me, somebody in that room is the bully with the juice. Hmm. And he may not be the end user of your product. He may not even be the budget holder, okay? He might just be a compliance guy that's worried about cloud security. Whoever that bully with the juice is, you've got to customize and adapt too because you've got to help that guy go from me to we. And if you go in with a standardized script that delivers benefits to the end user, you're going to miss the mark every time. And that gets back to the idea about why we have to be better at sales innovation and why we have to create our own multidisciplinary teams so that we can notice things we used to miss, get those ideas into market quickly, and be different than the competition. Hmm. So is this primarily about differentiation in terms of messaging? Well, actually, I'll give you a different way to think about it. It's really about rapid problem solving. So, so think about video gaming. Like, this is a great analogy for this. So when I first started selling, if I was to compare it to playing a video game, it's like Pong to Donkey Kong. Okay, it's either like stupid simple, you fill the funnel, you get deals, or maybe a little bit more of an obstacle course because the radio station might have had some ups and downs or the buyers never bought radio. But regardless, dude, it's not that difficult of a game mm -hmm. if you put the time in and you figure out hand-eye coordination. But as the years have gone on, we've developed much more sophisticated products. Gaming has gone multiplayer. And instead of one guy making Breakout or Pong, which was really the case back in the days of Atari, now you've got 60 guys working on Doom and Wolfenstein, 600 people building World of Warcraft and the modern Halo. Mm -hmm. And today, it's all about leveling up in a highly, highly combative environment. So, so the trick then is for you to be able to solve those 100 little problems Throughout those four levels of the sale, contact, conceive the deal, convince them you're right, contract signing, before you run out of lives or before your competition gets to the top. So rapid problem solving, I believe, is the only sustainable business advantage in the world today. It's not your product. It's not your service. Not even your people necessarily. They're all necessary but not sufficient. It's your process by which you solve problems faster than the other guys. And that's why I think it's important to have one in place that can step through quickly the next best play. This is really great. And obviously you're extremely well-versed. And so we're just going to keep going. We'll touch on your background towards the end of the interview because I, I am going to ask you about your time at Yahoo. But <laughs> while we're on the topic of sales and what you were saying, so whose problems do we need to be solving? Is it, I, I'm still... I'm in a sales role now uh, in some capacity. I mean, everyone I think is, but, and I've been in a sales role for most of my life, everywhere from fortune 100 to first employee at a two person company. Right. So yeah, yeah me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm bringing in all these thoughts and trying to relate them. So in terms of problem solving, mm -hmm. are you trying to figure out how your product or service solves their problem? Or yeah, let's go, let's go back through the levels, and I'll, I'll illustrate this for you. But the, the short answer is that you have as many internal problems to solve as you do customer problems mm -hmm. to solve. And to understand how to do that, you've got to understand the four levels you've got to conquer to win the game, right? So the first level you're trying to conquer is the contact level where you engage with enough decision makers to gather the right information to get to the next level and have some foundation for future communications, okay? So you've got 
the decision makers, presumably one, two, three, six, whatever, and they're all holders of this budget or sign off on things that affect this budget. You've got the influencers who can be users, auditors, or just plain interested parties, and they've got the ears of the decision maker. Okay, and then you've got third party companies. Those are consultants that might have might be impacted by your solution. They might be auditors or procurement groups who've been brought in from the outside to sharpen the saw. But you don't have to get through all of them in the contact phase, but you do need to find the right one, the mobilizer, as a CEB's research says. That's the person who can create change. And that mobilizer may introduce you to a sage, a teacher, who's going to also give you the information you need to figure out the, the pain that you're trying to solve. Because here's the point. You don't sell a product or a service. You sell change. Because your prospect has to change the way they do business to do business with you. And change is a scary word. So the contact level is really hard. So you've got to solve some problems on how you find them, how you make contact with the right one knowing you've only got so much time, and how you get them to tell you the information you need to do an accurate pain assessment so you can go to the second level. Because the second level is when you conceive the win-win deal. You know, in the old days, dude, I had like three packages of radio ads, right? Mm -hmm. You buy the little package for $250, you buy the promotion um, for $750 where we come by and do a live event, and you buy, you know, the annual deal for $2,000 where you get spots every month. And that's about as complicated as it got. Anybody on this call knows that when you sell in any new world today, there's technology, there's customization, you might combine products across a big company, they call that cross-selling. You might partner with another provider. I did that a lot when I was working for Mark Cuban at broadcast.com because we were small. But you've got to figure out that recipe that produces a provable return on investment because if you don't figure out that product prospect fit, you're going to get stuck every time on a sale because no one uh, to use Peter Drucker, the guru's phrase, no one wants to buy a quarter-inch drill bit, right? Yep. They They're want... just looking for quarter-inch holes. Yeah, I was going to say, they want the stuff hole. on the wall, right? Yep. So conceive is harder than you think because your prescription is only as good as your diagnosis and you get that from having the right contacts in the first level. Okay, so you got to solve a bunch of problems. So you got to get the information, you got to do the pain assessment, you got to create the recipe, and then you got to make it pencil. In other words, you've got to kind of look at everything behind your products and services in terms of capabilities and case studies and all that other stuff to be sure that what you're going to pitch reduces their cost, increases their opportunity, and is better than the competition. When you finish this, you're not done. Now you got to go convince them that they've got a pain so great they've got to make a change and that you're the only company can do that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you got to solve your own problems that they don't get your stats or analogies or case studies or in many situations you got to solve their problems that they got to go present on your behalf to people around the world that you'll never meet. You got to solve their problems on how to get a finance person, a legal person, the end user, and the IT person to all come together around their agendas and make a decision. This dysfunction is a real big problem you've got to solve. And then finally, when you've done all of that and you've solved whatever, 80 problems from the beginning of the journey to this point, now you've got to get a contract signed. 
And they've got a way they like to do business, and you've got a way you like to do business. And sometimes they bring the legal group at the end, who, by the way, doesn't give two hoots about your pain assessment or your ROI. And you got to solve those problems, either in terms of how you do deals under contract or how they make exceptions to boilerplate. And like I said, along the way, you're just going to count them. There's multitudes of problems, and there's as many that you have to solve, and there's a lot that they have to solve, and you got to help them. And as I like to say, we got to solve a lot of problems to earn the right to solve the problem that we found at the prospect. I'm going to be honest. It sounds exhausting. You just made any sales job to me like extreme, much less appealing. Well, you know, you well, you know, it, it, it just really depends on how well you create teams. If you can collaborate quickly across an enterprise, and I've given a lot of case studies in the book on how to do this, sales is the best job in the world because you control your destiny through collaboration and it's a game. Um, you know, it pays the most of any profession in the world. It delivers real satisfaction because there's actually a moment where the work is done and the mm -hmm. wind goes on the board. Mm -hmm. It is exhausting. And that's why 40% of all salespeople in B2B don't make quota. 40%, okay? In the old days, it was 15%. And we blame it on hiring, but it's the process. We've just not put anything into place to help the salesperson get some help from the outside. And so it is exhausting. It absolutely is. But I think there's a solution for that. All right. Well, you led me into it then. So what we're going to get into the solution a little bit. And I know like one of the things you talk about, let's talk about deal storming the book, right? Obviously, right off the bat, you think deal storming, maybe that's a brainstorming thing. Uh, typically, which is what you discussed, typically brainstorming and coming up this whole problem oriented approach isn't associated with sales. When did this moment come to you and why did you feel like it was more, you know, it wasn't the whole, the old Glengarry Glen Ross, as you said, you know, how many people can we reach, fill the funnel, read the script, blah, blah, blah. When did, when yeah, did yeah, that occur yeah. my, favorite, my favorite line out of that is when, when Baldwin says, all right, we're going to have a sales contest. Second place is you're fired. <laughs> I, I remember that part. Oh, like that's, was, the best. Like oh was, that's the yes. best. That's the best. When he holds up those brass balls. Yes. Oh, so good. Okay. <laughs> So it's 1997. I'm one of the first employees at Mark Cuban's startup, which was called AudioNet. When it IPO'd, it became Broadcast.com. This is the one Yahoo bought for a gazillion dollars. Mm -hmm. We're small. And I'm in a new division of Cuban's company called Business Services. And what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to do audio streaming and video streaming. This is 1997 for companies or universities for a fee. Live events content they want to distribute, et cetera. And we're a scrappy little startup. We're burning through cash. Um, we've got real competition um, with real networks and Microsoft Windows Media Player up in Seattle. So Cuban brings in the seasoned VP of sales, Stan Woodward. And Stan came from like the Cisco router world. He worked for a company called Ascend right before he went to work for us. So he'd done a lot of complicated multi-million dollar deals. And he knew that we need to increase our average deal size from where it was, seventeen dollars to $20,000 a deal, to something more appropriate for a scale, right? Like quarter million, half million dollars. So mm -hmm. anyway, first meeting with us in the Crow's Nest conference room inside our warehouse, he says to us, every deal with a big company or a major university is going to move the needle for us. It's our oxygen. And he goes, and you're going to get stuck. We're small. The technology's new. 
They don't have budget allocated yet for interactive. And when you get stuck, he said, don't go down alone. He said, it's really simple. You got to grab somebody who knows something about this problem or who cares about how it's going to turn out. And you got to organize them. You got to be part creative, like a brainstorming session, but you got to be very methodical where you're just looking for the next play and just solve it step by step. He says, but remember something, guys, no one gets credit for failing on their own. And at the time, something triggered in my head because my early career before I moved into sales was quality control, running quality circle brainstorming groups. This is in the 80s, okay? And these quality circle brainstorming groups, we'd assemble people from all departments in a factory or, or, or a shop. And they would all share information from their part of the line for us to spot why we had defects. Well, that, that hit me. This is exactly how we're going to approach these big deals. We're going to combine brainstorming's, you know, nurture creativity, come up with a range of ideas, try to notice connections, to the deal-making process, which is, you know, just like I explained before, A to B to C to D. And so when that hit me in that meeting, I remember turning to one of my sales associates and saying, cool, beans, deal-storming. Hmm. And so the very next big opportunity we had with Harvard University, we did get stuck pretty early on because they didn't have budget for it. They were worried it was going to crash and embarrass them. So I pulled together a team of guys from the broadcast center, engineers that did pre-prep work, somebody from our marketing group, two people that actually did the back-end services, and somebody that we worked with on the outside at one of the bandwidth companies, UUNet, and through two meetings and four conference calls, we came up with three different big solutions along the way that got that deal closed at twice the price we thought we would get. And that's when I thought, okay, this is really cool. We tried it again a bunch of other times when I was with Cuban's company. Mm-hmm. And it worked a little bit, but sometimes, honestly, it looked too much like one of those goat rodeo brainstorming sessions where you just throw a bunch of people in the room, you get a flip chart and say, let's come up with a bunch of ideas, no one debate. Right. right. And, and that's when Stan Woodward, my VP, kind of doubled back and said, no, you need to really figure out a process that works, that puts the right people on the team, prepares them before the meeting, mm-hmm. gives them a process and an agenda so it's not a pain in the ass to come to your meetings. And if you do that, he said, you can do it over and over again. And that's something I had an opportunity to really, I wouldn't say perfect, but refine at Yahoo through over 60 deal storms, over a half a billion dollars of revenue, all achieved from Fortune 1000 companies after the dot-com crash during 2001, 2002. That's when I decided to make that a consulting career. uh, And I did it 10 years on top of that. So we've really iterated this seven-step process that starts with qualifying the deal storm and ends with reporting the results, hopefully the innovations that are going to change the game for the next rep in the next similar situation. Hmm. So this is primarily about creating the sales process for an entire sales team, really. So you, you go into a room, you say, this is what we think is you know the best way to pitch it, and then go do it and test it out and let us know? Yeah, think about it as a tool for when you get stuck somewhere in the sales process, okay? It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't reinvent how you go to market and sell things. What it does is it helps you solve a problem. I call it a sales challenge, okay? Mm-hmm. So a sales challenge is when you're not moving forward in a prospective deal or you've lost an account for whatever reason and you got to get them back and you're stuck trying to get them back. So the key word here is stuck. Think of this like an app. 
kind of sits on top of an operating system. And this is something that sales leaders or executives or startup CEOs, they have to have this discussion, not just with sales, but with the whole company. And the discussion is very simple. Genius is a team sport. We live in a world where rapid innovation is how we win. So when we get stuck, we don't go down alone. We're going to build a team that's appropriate to the opportunity. Okay, Small deal, small team. Big deal, wide team. We're going to invite the skill players, the experts. We're going to invite the blockers and the tacklers, people who have a stake in the outcome. they got to do the heavy lifting after the deal. And we're going to put a team together as quickly as possible. We're going to prepare them. We're going to set the next best play. We're going to regroup. That's a strategy for moving forward. And by the way, when you figure out how to do that with your sales group, in my experience, it spreads to the rest of the company. Mm -hmm. They get stuck on a services issue. Guess what they do? They create a service storm. They get stuck on a product development issue. They create a product storm. So it's a nice way to change the culture of your company. I I was just thinking about the idea of culture because oftentimes – you know, people, if it, say they fail, say they don't meet their quota or their budget or their script isn't working, they're hesitant to go bring other people in because you know, oftentimes we've been brought up to think, well, then we're failing and we don't want to bring a megaphone and yell we're failing. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if you turn it around and hit your numbers, you're going to stay there. Anybody who's been in sales knows if you're hitting your numbers, nothing else matters. Right. So, so how you right. get there is really you know, who cares? But you're saying here's a good way to get there. And I definitely understand that. One of the things I'm wondering, though, is so say I, I go pitch a deal. I'm a salesman out in the field or mm-hmm. whatever it is. I pitch a deal uh, to two people and or, or say I pitch it to five. It doesn't really matter. I close one and I get two to three call it rejections, but most of the time, at least I've found, it's not straight up rejections. It's like, well, send me an email, send me the contract, you never get it back. What What is the first step for all the salespeople out there to go back and say, what did I do wrong or what went wrong in this scenario? Again, you got you to take a design viewpoint here. You got to see where you are in the process. So the, the, that, that's a first step. Where am I stuck in this four-level process? And the second thing you've got to ask yourself is what is the root cause? Like what's the problem behind the problem? So you went out, you closed one deal, that's great. You went out to the others and for whatever reason you're not moving forward. Let me give you a word that they use at at Cox Media Group, a big sales organization, sells all kinds of stuff. They call it contracting. So the idea is, is that as a sales rep, every time you engage the prospect, you should be contracting. By, by that, I mean you're moving forward to the next little step. You're getting a little agreement, right? Mm-hmm. So you're in that first meeting, and they're saying, yes, we're going to introduce you to the other two decision makers. Or you're getting them to say, yes, we're going to give you some information about how we currently solve this problem so you can do ROI calculations for us. That's a contract little contract that they're doing. And these series of little contracts kind of add up to getting the signature on the final contract. So when you're a rep and you go out in the field and you're not contracting, you repeat the sales process. You may adjust the targets and repeat the sales process, but usually within two to three interactions, you're stuck. And much like a video game, you don't have a lot of lives. You can't just bug people trying the same things over and over again because you're going to create a problem for the next rep that may come along at a better time, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a point that a sales leader knows we're not contracting with the current play. And that's a point where you step back and say, okay, how big is this opportunity? 
Because, because there's a cost to collaboration, okay? When that sales rep begins to assemble other people, they're taking them off their job. So that's when the sales manager goes, okay, it's a little deal, just let it go. Or they might say, it's a medium-sized deal, but we've only got 15 prospects in this segment, and we got to win at least five of them. Or they might say, it's a big deal, and that's going to kind of trigger how wide the storm is. Could be two or three people, you know, just the sales rep, the manager, and maybe someone in the services team, or it can be wider all the way out to finding an inside champion. I think that's the trick. Where are we stuck? Not contracting. How big is the opportunity? And how big should the team be against it? And again, in a world where you don't have unlimited prospects, you have to start thinking this way because it's not about the funnel anymore, it's about solving the puzzle. Mm hmm. And the puzzle is only getting more complicated. Well, it is. And, <laughs> and you know, the, it, it, can either, it can either be your brutal competitive advantage or the bane of your existence. Right. And I'll come back to Cuban one more time. What a crazy guy. But he used to say back in 97, 98, everybody's a genius during a bull market. Hmm. So after dot-com crash, he was like, this is an equal opportunity for the smart people. Wow. Right? So, so that's how this works, too, is that complication is a problem if you think it is. Well, but actually, if you think okay. it's an advantage, then it's a huge way to win. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. And I mean, I've heard that in the stock market specifically. And I'm glad you mentioned Cuban because I wanted to ask you just in general, what was it like working for him? Well, I mean, it was high pressure because yeah. he's, a super, he's a super ambitious guy. He's a Napoleon Hill trained, Ayn Rand influenced guy that believes that the winners are so well-researched and so prepared, they can make an instant decision and be very hard to undo it. He thinks the losers get by with only what they need to know. They take too long to make a decision, and then they undo it the minute they face adversity. So, so with Cuban, you had, to be, you had to be on your toes. You had to do your research. Um, you could pitch him something. He was very available, but if your assumptions were wrong, he'd make you wish you were ever born. So <laughs> he was he was a good guy to work for if you had your act together. He really was. And his personality was awesome. And his mantra about service was make love, not war. He was the kind of guy where if we did a, a video streaming event and the client wasn't a thousand percent satisfied, he'd tear up the invoice and we'd eat it. Really? Every single time. Right. So he was a like Nordstrom when it came to that. So I hadn't worked for someone who really walked that walk, hmm. and and that was that was refreshing, and it had a lot to do with you know why he was not just successful in selling broadcast to Yahoo, but everything he touched from HD.net to the Dallas Mavericks. His service philosophy has been the winning edge. Have you seen have you, the show Billions? I have not seen that yet. <laughs> it's start, he's, I'm starting to feel like there's a uh, like a little bit of a connection between the guy who plays the, the main character and. And Cuban, I'd be interested there. Yeah. Um, and then the, the last thing I had kind of on this, I know we're running short on time here, but, um, you know, I, I, you were at Yahoo. Well, you were with Cuban and the company got acquired by Yahoo, correct? Yep. And then so you were there and you eventually became the chief solution officer, which I want to know a little bit about what that means. But you were there during one of the roughest times in the technology sector, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. What, what was that like? What was the, <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, mm -hmm. right? So 97, 98, you just couldn't be hotter. This is an industry. It was just awesome. And we were growing. Uh, and I joined, there was 30-ish people. It was 800 people by the time we sold. So it was very exciting. 
And the acquisition by Yahoo, though, was interesting because inside broadcast.com, there were two ways of thinking about it. So, so, so there were a lot of people. We were in Dallas. There was a lot of people where they're like, oh, my God, we've just been bought by Yahoo, these mysterious you know, people out in the Silicon Valley, and, and they're going to interfere with how we do things. And it's going to be different than it ever was before. And believe it or not, that's the way a lot of people think about being acquired. Mm -hmm. And then there was another train of thought, and this is the one, fortunately, I had, which was, oh, my God, Yahoo just turned our pesos into dollars. So, so now we've got this mega brand behind us that we didn't have before. And instead of having three engineers to point at a problem, I can literally gather 100 engineers. So I took that abundance viewpoint, and I believe that the Yahoo execs could smell that the first time I met them at the fourth quarter kickoff in 1999. So the SVP of sales, Anil Singh, invites me to come out to Carmel at their annual golf client event thing and make a presentation on video and the future of the internet. And he had me split time with their VP of permission marketing, Seth Godin. And it just kind of began a journey for me. But dude, I sold everything in Dallas. We moved to Silicon Valley. We mortgaged ourselves into debt to buy a house an hour away from the office because that's how hot it was at the time. Mm -hmm. And by March of 2000, the market crashed. Oh. So, so you, the worst part of all that was that Yahoo's customer base was all dot coms. It's sort of like the software as services market now. You know, the SaaS guys just do business with the other SaaS startups. Mm -hmm. That's how they subsist. But what happens when that ecosystem perishes? Well, guess what happened to us? By about, I would say, July or August of 2000, all the stock market analysts had turned against us. And they were like, man, we have an ugly book of business and we sell a product called banner ads that don't work. Mm -hmm. And our stock had gone from 250 to about four bucks. Oh. Everybody was underwater on their options. You can imagine. It was really ugly. And so we had a very limited time to put together a new book of business that consisted of Fortune 1000 companies. And by the way, they didn't believe banner ads worked either. So that's when we created this, this deal-storming SWAT team we called the Value Lab, where I kind of roamed around the company finding big opportunities with big logos that were stuck in the pipeline and spinning up these teams to solve them as quickly as possible. And through all of that success by... 2002, they, they gave me the title Chief Solutions Officer to work on the company's biggest problems. Wow. So essentially your job, it was, hey, we have horrible problems. Here you go. Solve these. That sounds... Uh... So one of our executives <laughs> had seen Pulp Fiction. And so the Harvey Keitel character, The Wolf, he was like, we need one of those. Oh my and God. one of our other executives is like, Sanders does that for the sales challenges. You know, mm -hmm. he and his team are fearless. And they're like, all right, let's have him do it for the challenges. And that was my job. And 2002, I traveled over 300 days. I went around the world. It was crazy. And, and that's where I really kind of refined this problem-solving technique. Even though I just write about sales in the new book, I've been involved in solving all kinds of challenges. And it always starts with, why are we really stuck? And four more whys about that. And it leads to the next play, which is not the magic solution. This is a Coach K Duke thing. It's literally the next play because that's how the game works. Hmm. Well, that's a great place to stop, Tim. So again, um, the book is Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenge. I know I could go on this conversation forever, but you know, you're a busy man. And so we touched on the surface of a lot of things that are covered in the book. 
Um, is there anywhere else that, you know, we'll, we'll put a link to that, uh, you know, on our website, anywhere else that you write or are you on social anywhere that people can find you? Yeah, you can find me on any social network. I'm at Sanders says, just like Simon says, but Sanders Mm -hmm. says two S's in the middle. And you can download a free chapter of Deal Storming right now. It's called Sales Genius is a Team Sport. And if you want to do that, if you're listening, you can go to dealstorming.net front slash free. Love that. All right, Tim, I'm going to let you run. I know you got another one in a couple minutes here. So take a take a breather. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Fantastic stuff. Great, and man. I enjoyed it too. Great questions. Really good interview style, man. It's awesome. Really appreciate that. We'll reach out, let you know when this goes live. Awesome, dude. All right. Well, Thank you. I'll talk to you later. All right. Enjoy your busyness. <laughs> talk to you later. All right. See ya. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tim Sanders. You can find his book, Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges at your local bookstore or on Amazon. If you do decide to purchase through Amazon, please do not forget to use Smart People Podcast's Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. When you use the link, there's no extra cost to you, and we get a nice little kickback that helps us keep the lights on here at Smart People Podcast. If you'd like another free and easy way to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating, review, and comment over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can send us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Don't forget, if you want to get into the Smart People Mastermind, you can still do so by going over to mastermind.smartpeoplepodcast.com and signing up over there. We've got a lot of great things coming up, great episodes, great webinars. Make sure you stay tuned. That's it for me this episode. We will see you all next week.